Good morning, church. This morning's scripture reading is from Psalms 22 in its entirety. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I, I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust in you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no help. There's none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open, they open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shard, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you, offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you, offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or aborted the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth Eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. 
that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It was 3 a.m., and I was at a loss for words as I sat on the edge of the queen bed in our spare bedroom, sleep-deprived and out of tears, definitely out of answers. Caitlin had taken the last shift and was now getting just a couple hours of desperately needed sleep. I was exhausted and thinking about how in four hours I would need to be awake and getting dressed, ready to come here to lead worship with all of you. It was early Sunday morning, March 2018. Eve was sick. We'd managed to keep her out of the hospital the last few days, but it required our constant attention morning and night. That wasn't that far outside of the norm for us. With a winter sickness, that tended to happen. But that night, I had prayed and prayed that God would take away the sickness. I prayed that he'd bring relief for my child and that he'd allow me to sleep a little bit before I had to go do the thing that I thought he wanted me to be doing. Nothing. No answers. Her oxygen saturation didn't improve. Her breathing didn't slow down. Nothing changed. Felt like my prayers were falling on deaf ears. Felt like God didn't care about my situation. I felt like I was in the right, that God had abandoned me if he ever existed in the first place. And I suspect many of you have felt similar pain. Maybe not identical, but you've prayed and you haven't received answers. Maybe your wife or your mother, your husband or your child was dying from cancer. Maybe you were losing your job or your home. Your marriage was falling apart, or maybe you were just worn out and in desperate need of a break. You prayed, and all you heard was silence. You felt like you were suffering all alone. You pleaded with God, but it didn't matter how much you pleaded. The response was non-existent. If you were like me, you couldn't help but ask the question, why? Why, God? Why don't you listen Why don't you care? Why don't you love me? Why aren't you near to me? Why haven't you shown yourself to me? Why? Unfortunately, as you've pursued this line of reasoning, you may have been told that that was an inappropriate way to address God. God is good and powerful. He's in heaven. And any time we question those facts, we're sinning. Oftentimes, then, we're left wondering, how do we process the pain and the struggles in our life? Or maybe you've stopped wondering and you just kind of stuff those details down away and try not to think of them. Or even worse, you don't really believe anymore, but as long as you don't think about it, you think you can kind of just keep going along. I don't agree with the mentality that wrestling with God, questioning God, is a sin. I don't think the Bible supports that idea. I believe that God is a loving God, a Father who desires to hear our cries. He is good and all-powerful, and the way that you feel about him at this moment, that won't change that. He is holy, he is good, he is powerful, and, and as you wrestle with that, that doesn't change who God is. But he still wants to hear you. He still wants to know how you feel. And I believe as we dive into Psalm 22, we're going to see a God who's with us in our pain. Not a God who rails against us in our pain or a God who expects better of us when we're suffering. Not that in the depths of our despair, he is still our loving father. 
If you have your bulletin in front of you, go ahead and pull out the notes. We're going to walk through five big ideas for how Christians should process suffering. The first idea is this. Lament is a healthy part of the life of God's people. Lament is a healthy part of the life of God's people. Psalm 22 is considered a personal lament psalm. To lament means to mourn, to passionately express sorrow. In the context of Christianity, to lament means that we passionately express our sorrow and our doubt, both with God and with each other. This can come in the form of prayers. Uh, It could come in the form of a song. It could just be in the form of a conversation as you tell your brothers and sisters in Christ what's going on in your life. But in modern Christianity, we tend to kind of flee the idea of admitting our suffering and admitting our doubts. I mean, how many of you, when you were asked today how you were doing, responded with an unconvincing, great. (laughs) If you're an introvert, you might have said fine or great, just in hopes that nobody would ask more questions. (laughs) If you're an extrovert, I have no clue why you lie, but (laughs) I would suggest you get together and discuss it. We all know that conversation will never end, though, so... Whatever your reason is, I think it's uncommon for us to open up and be honest about our pain with other believers. But the idea that as Christians, we shouldn't struggle, that we we shouldn't have problems with doubt, or we shouldn't have pain in our life is just extremely unbiblical. And the idea that we're supposed to go through it on our own and deal with these problems on our own, that's also very unbiblical. Jesus tells us in John 15, 20 that if they persecuted him, we should certainly expect to be persecuted. That's the life of a Christian. Jesus commands us to take up our cross and follow him in Matthew 16, 24 through 26. We're expected to deny some of our desires as we follow Christ. And Paul tells us that all of creation is, is groaning longing for God to come and set things right. Because we know the world is fallen and broken. Pain is to be expected. Life is not easy. Life is difficult. There are actually more lament psalms in the book of Psalms than there are any other type of psalm. There's uh, over 60 of them. In his book on lament, R. W. L. Moberly said it this way, The prominence of lament at the very heart of Israel's prayers means that the problems that give rise to lament are not something marginal or unusual, but rather they are central to the life of faith. Moreover, they show that the experience of anguish and puzzlement in the life of faith is not a sign of a deficient faith, something that should be outgrown or put behind us, but rather it's intrinsic to the very nature of faith. When we stuff our suffering away, when we hide that, it actually shows that we have a lack of confidence in God. We act as if God is not big enough to handle our complaints. But I love how bluntly David opens this psalm. Read read verses 1 and 2 with me again. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. 
David is honest about his complete and utter despair. In verse 2, David uses a mirrorism. I talked about that a little bit last time. Using day and night to try to communicate all the time. I'm always crying out to you and I have not heard an answer. At the end of verse 2, he uses this phrase, I find no rest. And literally translated, it means there's no quietness. He's saying, like, I keep crying because I haven't heard. And so I continue and continue to cry out to you because I have not heard from you. I suspect most of us have felt this kind of despair and doubt at some point in our life. But I don't know that many of us have honestly shared it with God. But when we hide our suffering and our doubt from God, it shows that we have a doubt in his ability to prove himself. We act as if it's our job to defend God, but God never asked us to do that. Lament is a healthy part of the life of God's people. It's a way that we actually show confidence in God that he can stand up to any accusation that comes before him, that it's not our job to defend God. But it also opens the door for us to allow God's people, our brothers and sisters, to support us. Admitting our pain opens the door to be encouraged by other believers. The value of good friends with which we can be honest is incalculable. That difficult night last March was really just a part of a series of difficult days and nights. My sadness and my doubts didn't just dry up and go away after a few good hours of sleep. They honestly didn't even go away when Eve was feeling better. A week or two after all this took place, I remember sitting in the Burnham's living room, slowly opening up about just how much pain and doubt I was experiencing. And that day, David and Anna supported Caitlin and me in that moment. We cried together. (laughs) We prayed. Well, they prayed for us. (laughs) And showed us the love of Christ. I don't remember a single thing that they said that day. But it was a significant turning point from a very dark season for me. When we lament, it opens the door to be encouraged by our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're called to share in each other's pain. Romans 12, 15 says that we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and we're to weep with those who weep. We're supposed to meet our brothers and sisters in Christ where they're at and live in that life with them, cry with them, support them, rejoice with them when good news comes. And in Galatians 6, 2, it says that we're to bear each other's burdens. Beyond being encouraging to other, uh, sorry, beyond being able to be encouraged by other believers, it also opens the opportunity for us to encourage other believers who are suffering when we're honest about our struggles, when we're honest about our suffering, when we're honest about our doubts. It opens the door for us to encourage other people who are suffering as well. Statistics have shown that the number one reason teens are leaving the church after graduation is because people are unable or unwilling to talk to them about difficult issues. As I've talked with students I find very few of them struggle with the question of whether God exists. That seems really obvious. Most of them agree God exists. That's, that's not a big question mark currently. But that doesn't mean that Christianity is obvious. And when we act like life with Jesus is just always happy and wonderful, we leave them feeling like they don't have a place to belong because they're dealing with difficult things. These students have hard questions They see people around them suffering, and they themselves are suffering. 
They know people who have committed suicide. They deal with anxiety and bullying in forms that have never existed before. And they wrestle with questions of why they look the way they do, why their friends treat them the way they do, why their friends are talking about them behind their back. They see other kids' parents getting divorced, and they sit there wondering, is, am I going to be next? They have doubts. Believe it or not, most teenagers are smart enough to realize that life is not easy. They have these doubts, and when we put forward a persona that says, everything is just great, life is easy, I have no doubts, they feel like they don't have a place to belong because that's not the life that they're experiencing. But when we lament together, it opens the door to encourage each other, encourage other believers to carry on. At this point, you may be asking, what does it look like to lament? We're going to deal with that in the next two points here. First one is this, that lament requires us to be honest with God and with others about our situation. Lament requires us to be honest with God and with others about our situation. I think it's always tempting to sugarcoat things, uh, but as we see here, David doesn't do that. He doesn't say, God, why do you feel so distant? He doesn't say, what have I done wrong? What can I do to make you like me more? David is honest, and the words that he opens this psalm with are strong. And against a backdrop of theology where we understand God is always present in our lives, it probably makes us a little bit uncomfortable. And that's okay. Let's read those two verses again. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. David says, you aren't there. You've left me all alone. And again, if we're honest, I think most of us have felt this at some point in our life. When we lament, it's healthy to express our doubts about God. If everything is crashing down around you, if you struggle and say there's no way that God can be good and I can be experiencing the things I am experiencing, it's good to open up, admit that to God, and share that with our brothers and sisters as well. It's good to ask him why we are suffering. We don't need to run away from that. Be honest with him and with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't be afraid. But it's also healthy to describe as you do this your doubts about yourself. We, say, we see David do that in uh, verses 6 through 8. He says, But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. David says he's not even worthy to call himself a human anymore. He's a worm, a scourge of humanity. David is honest about his current view of himself. And his identity is so deeply rooted in who God is in his life that when God is absent, when God seems absent, he doesn't know himself anymore. Is your identity that deeply rooted in God? Is your life framed in such a way that if God doesn't come through, your life will be in utter disarray or... Is he more of a backup plan? David is hurting and alone, seemingly without his God, the one that he trusts. 
And his enemies challenge him again. His enemies say, if, if his God is real, then let his God rescue him. And honestly, I imagine at this point that David is kind of like, frankly, God, they might be onto something. I would <laughs> really appreciate if you backed me up here. He tells God what's going on. It's important that as we process lament, we, we're honest about our doubts about God. We're honest about our doubts about ourselves. Even as we struggle with this, it's also good to express the injustices that we're experiencing. It's healthy to cry out about those injustices. In verses 12 through 18, David uses a vast array of word pictures to describe what's being done to him. He uses somewhat vague and uh, vague words that don't show us exactly, but it seems like his life is at risk. In verse 12, you may see the phrase, bulls of Bashan surround me and wonder what in the world that means. You know the phrase, everything is bigger in Texas? It's kind of like that. Massive bowls come from Bashan. It was a region that got lots of rain, and so it seemed like everything grew bigger there. So he's describing, even as I'm under attack, it's the worst kind of these animals that are attacking me. His attackers surround him. He's treated unfairly. He's being pushed towards death, and he feels like God has resigned him to that, that God has laid him in the dust of death. In your life, be honest with God. Who has mistreated you? Or maybe it's not someone, maybe it's just the pain of living in a broken world. But it doesn't seem fair when our loved one dies, when they experience a disability, or when your spouse treats you poorly. Or maybe you're working two jobs just trying to keep your family afloat and it seems like everyone around you is going on vacation. Whatever it is, difficulties come in this life. Talk to God about it. We could fill in the blank with a million different ideas. But even as we're honest with God about our suffering, about our doubts and our difficulties, it's important that in our despair, we remember that... um, Sorry, in our despair, we remember who God is and what he's done. In our despair, we remember who God is and what he has done. I'm extremely forgetful. I don't know about you guys. Um, I can't count the number of times a day that I walk into a room and realize I have no clue why I'm there. <laughs> uh, it's really not uncommon for me to, you know, Caitlin, to ask me to grab some chips or something from the cupboard and watch me stare aimlessly into the fridge for 30 seconds before reminding me where I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to be doing. And it always seems to get worse with stress. And I think for a lot of us, struggling with forgetting what God has done gets worse when we're in the midst of our suffering. We love to read our Bibles and laugh at just how stupid and forgetful those Israelites and disciples are. I mean, they're ridiculous. Constantly forgetting what God's done for them. God frees his people from Egypt. He parts the Red Sea. He drowns their enemies. He does these incredible acts. And then it seems like just a few days later, they're like, we got to make a God out of gold because it's really scary to be out here in the desert without a God we can worship. And you're like, wait, that you, what? you could worship Okay, never mind. Anyway, (laughs) or the disciples. They experienced God feeding 5,000 plus people with just a couple loaves of bread and a a few fish. In the afternoon, they jump in the boat, and Jesus challenges them to not live like the Pharisees. And they turn to each other, and they're like, dude, who forgot the bread? Like, 
That's not the point. They really forgot. And it's great fun laughing at these silly, silly people. But when trial hits, how many of us sit there and think, man, God, why doesn't God do something to show me that he loves me? Why doesn't God do something? It's important to honestly express our struggles and our frustration, but it's also to remember, important to remember who God is and what he has done. David does this in verses 3 through 5 by declaring truth about God and the history of how God has interacted with his people. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. The first thing he does here is not to acknowledge God's love or his kindness or his mercy. The first thing he states is that God is holy. He remembers that God is not like him. God is much higher, much wiser, and worthy of praise. And we would do well to follow in David's footsteps in remembering that God is holy. He is high above us. But not only does he remind, uh, David doesn't just remind himself of who God is, but also how he's acted in history, how he's interacted with his people. And in our pain, it's good to do that as well, to remember the way that God has cared for his people, the stories of the people around you, but also the history of the church. Look at how through intense persecution, God has spread his message all over the world to quickly become the biggest religion against all odds. Twelve scared and oftentimes stupid men led to this explosion. There's no way to explain this other than through the resurrection and through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When we look at how God has worked through history and in the lives of those around us, it keeps us grounded even as we are struggling in that moment. In addition to remembering how God has worked through those around us and before us, it's good for us to remember how God has acted in our lives. In verses 9 through 11, David reflects on his very personal experiences with God. It's good to remember, that, uh, good to remember why you trusted God in the first place. How he's reassured you of that trust over your life. Um, I love sharing with people cool things that God's done in my life, the way that he's changed me and refined me, although I still have a long way to go there. But uh, he's carefully and intentionally prepared us, and, and all the steps that took place to bring us here to Bethany, the blessing to be here at Bethany. It's easy to see his loving care for us, but in the moments of darkness, it's oftentimes hard for me to remember. But even as we tell God about the hard things, the bad things, our doubts and our struggles, it's important that we remind ourselves how we have seen him love us in the past. When you lament, it's important to stop and remind yourself of what God has done in your life. And then in verses 19 through 21, David reminds us that it's healthy to cry out to God even when you haven't heard a response. And if I'm honest, I struggle with this one a lot. It's really easy for me to pray a few times and then when I haven't heard an answer, either move on with my life or let discouragement overtake me. But David doesn't do that. He cries out to God. He starts by saying at the very beginning of the psalm, why have you abandoned me? Why aren't you near me? But at the middle of the psalm, he's still crying out to God, asking him to intervene. 
19 through 21, he says, But you, O O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quick to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of dogs. Save me from the mouth of the lions. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Don't give up asking. Don't stop coming before God and laying your burdens at his feet. Even while you tell him of your despair, don't stop crying out that he would rescue you. Our lives should be so firmly rooted in trusting God that we recognize he's our only hope in times of trouble. And we know that this hope isn't misguided. Because even as we live in this broken world, we know there is one who has come before us. We can take huge comfort in the fact that Jesus has suffered beside us and for us. That Jesus has suffered beside us and for us. You see, on the cross 2,000 years ago, Jesus applied this psalm to himself. He took the claim on of being the perfect human, the suffering servant, the Messiah who came not to judge and condemn, although he will come to judge one day, but he came as the Messiah who would suffer and die in our place. Every other religion talks about what you can do to make God happy, but in Christianity, God's love is so incredible that he came in the form of a baby, showed us what humility really looked like, and died in our place. 2,000 years ago, Jesus claimed this psalm to be about himself. In Matthew 27, 46, we read that as Jesus was being crucified, that at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud, loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quotes this psalm. But the parallels don't end there. You may have noticed several other ways in this psalm that, they seem to, uh, that this psalm actually seems to be all about Jesus. I got a little chart here. That first one we referenced. And then if you look, you can see in Psalm 22, 7, David says that all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. And then as Matthew is describing the crucifixion scene in Matthew 27, 39, it says, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. In the next verse, David says, in, uh, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And as Matthew describes the crucifixion scene again, the people standing around say, He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And lastly, in Matthew, uh, sorry, in Psalm 22, 18, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And then we know as the crucifixion scene is described in Matthew 27, 35, he says that and when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Beyond that, in verse 16, the psalmist says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. For David, this was probably referring to the idea of the vicious dogs or lions attacking and tearing at his hands and feet. But for Jesus, this applies clearly to his crucifixion as he was nailed to that cross as he was pierced for our sins. Jesus entered into our suffering. We know that in our suffering, the God of the universe has suffered beside us. 
The author of Hebrews, Hebrews says this about Jesus. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And this is our real reason for hope in the midst of suffering. Jesus has suffered beside us and for us. He knows how to relate to us in the midst of our pain and our doubt. Jesus experienced physical pain far greater than most of us will ever experience as he was viciously beaten, nailed to a cross, and then suffocated as he hung there. He knows the emotional pain of losing someone. He had friends die, family die. He had people betray him and abandon him. And ultimately, he felt the horrible pain of suffering as his father rejected him. As God turned his back on him, as he hung on that cross, wearing our sins upon himself, rejected by God because of what you and I have done. Jesus can relate to us in our suffering. Jesus knows what you're going through, and not in some abstract way like he's God, but he knows in a very real way exactly what you're experiencing. We have a good and loving God who understands our pain. And beyond that, our hope is based on the fact that not only has Jesus suffered beside us, but he suffered for us. That Jesus' death on the cross was payment for the sins of humanity. And if your faith is in Jesus, then even when this world is falling apart, we can have hope. There's one thing that I have learned as I've gotten older. It's that sometimes life is just miserable and there's not necessarily a lot of hope at times. You might be going through a difficult season where you know there will be relief soon and that's great. Rejoice in that. But for some of you, you're in a difficult season and you know that, well, there may be times of relief. It may just be that the rest of your life you wrestle with this pain and loss. But even as we lament the pain of this life, we can have confidence in the next. Even when I am acutely aware of how broken my life is, I can have hope because I have confidence that Jesus is coming again for me. And it's going to be amazing. My child is going to be able to run. Your dad is going to be alive able to give you a hug. You'll finally hold your baby. Whatever loss you've experienced will be made right. For everyone who has faith in Jesus, the hope of new life is very real. And even when there's no signs of relief, we live in joy awaiting his return. I love this C.S. Lewis quote. Some mortals say that of temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus is going to make all the sad things come untrue. Everything's going to be all right. 
And we have reason to hope even as we cry. That's our last point, that God will deliver us from our despair and that all his people will praise him. It might be now for you. It will certainly be at the resurrection, but God will deliver us. David spends the last third of this psalm describing that praise, beginning first with him and then spreading throughout the world. In verses 22 through 26, David speaks of praising God with his fellow Jews, of sharing the blessing that God has given, with, given him with those that are still in the midst of their suffering and affliction. Because God loves those who are suffering. But David moves on then to paint a picture in verses 27 through 31 of every nation praising. Rich and poor, young and old, this generation and the next. In Ephesians 4, 13 through 15, Paul describes this new unity between Jews and Gentiles, between all people of the earth, as he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down his, uh, in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Through the work of Jesus, everyone who now believes is united as one people, and together we rejoice. We praise God because of the healing that he has brought us now and in the future. We recognize, as David does in verse 28, the kingship belongs to the Lord. We both rejoice in this kingship and we submit to this kingship. We serve a king who is both holy and loving. He's just and he's caring. He's all-powerful, and yet he is willing to suffer beside us. David ends this psalm with words very close to those Jesus uses at the end of his life. At the end of his life, Jesus said, it is finished. At the end of this psalm, David declares, he, referring to God, he has done it. We serve a God who loves us and is big enough to handle us, even in the midst of our suffering and doubts. Never forget that your hope rests not in the life that you can build for yourself here on this earth, but in the fact that Jesus has done it. He's paid the debt that you owe for the sins that you have committed. We have hope because he has done it. We have hope because it is finished.